You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. Tonight's reading comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 through 21. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others, but what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful indeed for your word. We pray now that we might uh, have grace, that you might give us grace so that we might trust you all the more. Help us to understand this gospel more deeply. Help us to take this gospel to the world more deeply. God, we are so thankful for this time to gather under your word today. We pray that you would bless it now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, Tonight is a torch night, so if you are a fourth through sixth grader and would like to go talk about uh, this text and, in fact, uh, the last several weeks of thinking through our liturgy or order of service with Cedric and Aaron, you guys can head on out now. Uh, Well, here we are. Uh, finishing this last week of our liturgy series, of just thinking through the order of our service. Uh, Next Sunday, I can't wait to begin a walk through the book of Ephesians with you all. Like, uh, Cedric and I have started, like, meeting and studying this book, maybe memorizing some big, big chunks of that book, and part of me, after meeting with Cedric on, I don't know, Wednesday morning and thinking about Ephesians, was like, I just want to preach, preach Ephesians this Sunday. Let's just go. Let's, let's, let's do it. It is so good, but tonight we need to finish this. We need to finish this. Uh, Six weeks ago, we first thought about why we have ordered our service in the way that we have, Uh, that the rhythms that we put ourselves in and under and through weekly uh, actually shape and form our desires, will shape and form what we worship. And in that first sermon of this series, we thought about God's call to worship, That worship isn't something that we just do for an hour or an hour and a half once a week. Uh, But in reality, every human, every hour, every minute, every second of our life, no matter where we are, we are always worshiping. We are worshiping creatures. And so it is God's reorienting call to worship him 
that then lifts our eyes to himself, the one who is actually worthy. So true Christian worship is about worshiping God in our weeks, in our days, in our moments at all times. But it is his call to worship that calls his people to gather in worshiping together. This is a gathered worship. His people are meant to worship wherever we are, wherever we are scattered throughout the week. But there is something uniquely wonderful about gathering. Something that we haven't also thought about is that this Sunday, this service, will never be recreated ever again. Have you thought about that? That these people singing these songs, professing these things out loud, putting ourselves under this particular text of Scripture will never happen again in the history of the universe. Uh, That's wonderful. That's great. So that makes every Sunday uniquely important. But then we thought about as God calls us to worship in a gathered sense, we thought about confession and assurance, about singing and profession, about prayer and preaching, and last week about what this Lord's table is. And now tonight, just as God calls us in to gather to worship, he then sends us all back out to scattered worship which gets us to this very last element of our service, the benediction. The word benediction literally is just a Latin word that means good word. Uh, It's a word that God gives us, a good word for the road, a word or blessing on our way out the door. And I thought about preaching through one of our regular verses or texts that we tend to go to for our benediction at the end of the service or one of the many words of blessing that God gives to his people, But rather, I thought it'd be perhaps good for us to camp out a little bit on what God has done in the gospel, everything that we remember through the entirety of each of our services, but then what God intends to do through us in the gospel as he sends us along our our way. So I had Shannon read 2 Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 11, but we're going to really pick up this text in verse 14 under two headings, thinking about ourselves individually and collectively as the church as new creations of God, God's new creation, God makes new creations, but then he also gives them a new mission. So new creations with a new mission. So first of all, God makes new creations. Starting in verse 14, let me just read a couple of these verses again, 2 Corinthians 5, where Paul writes, for the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Last week, we thought long and hard about our union with Christ about how those who are trusting in his life and death and resurrection share with him in all of those things. And verses 14 and 15 of this chapter further illustrate that point. Verse 14 is really interesting and then actually kind of confusing. Paul says, we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. We often use language like Jesus died the death that we should have died. So it seems the logic of the gospel would mean that it would make more sense for Paul to write here. We have concluded this, that one has died for all so we wouldn't have to die, right? Or one has died for all so that we could live. 
But that's not what Paul says. He, what in the world? He says, for one has died for all, therefore all have died. What is he meaning? Well, he means what he writes in Romans 6. Or he writes in Romans 6, 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. We tend to think of benefiting, I think, from Jesus' death as a way to save us from all the bad stuff. Jesus died so that we would not have to go to hell and then we can perhaps share in his life with all of the good stuff. But a whole lot of the good stuff of the gospel, a whole lot of the benefits of the gospel of Jesus actually comes in sharing in his death. Not just sharing in his life, not as his death as a way to merely excuse us from sin, but for those who are trusting in Christ that the old self might be crucified with Christ. The life of living only for self-centered pleasure is now executed. That is good news. Because a Christian is one who realizes that what the world has to offer, of money, of fame, of sex, of alcohol, of accolades, of just passive leisure, none of those actually can keep the promises that they make that of ultimate satisfaction and meaning they cannot give. The Christian then recognizes that seeking ultimate pleasure in the gifts apart from the giver is not only idolatry, but is actually counterproductive to the God-given pleasure hunt of life. Pursuing joy and meaning and satisfaction in all of these things actually is a waste of time. So a Christian is someone who ultimately agrees with God that he or she wants to be rid of that old self. Now, some of you might be thinking, I do want to be rid of that old self. In fact, I thought I was. I thought when I was baptized, or I thought when things were going so well three or four or five weeks ago, and then this weekend was terrible. It was a weekend full of selfishness and sin. I thought I put my trust in Christ many years ago, but maybe it wasn't real. After all, verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. I still feel and act very much like the old self. It certainly doesn't seem that I am this new creation that Paul is talking about. Maybe I've missed the gospel altogether. Well, we've talked about this quite a bit, but here's another example of something that is already but not yet true. In sharing in Jesus' death, the old self has died already. But fully, it's not dead yet. Mostly dead, but not fully. Or think about it like this. When did John Wilkes Booth assassinate or kill Abraham Lincoln? We could say... He killed Lincoln at 10.15 p.m. on April 14th, 1865, even though the president did not die until 7.22 a.m. on April 15th, 1865. When did did Booth kill him? On the 14th or the 15th? I think we could say, yes, he he killed him. He, he, He dealt a mortal wound on April 14th even though the president did not die until the morning after. When we become united to Christ through faith, the old self, that of the flesh or of self-pleasure and of self-worship, is dealt 
a mortal wound. But like a wounded dog, that thing still fights and is dangerous. That's why we Christians actively ought to put it daily to death. And yet the death of the old self is not good news unless there is a better life to replace it with. And this is the life of the Spirit that then courses through the believer's veins. Pulling weeds actually doesn't slow the weed growth unless you do soil work, unless you replant other things in its place. Some of you have heard me use this illustration before, but the old self is like milk suds in an empty uh, gallon of milk. The milk is gone, but the remains are still very much there, still very much present. The way to get rid of the old stuff in there is not to just put a little bit of water in there and mix it around, swish it around, and pour it out. You've done very little there. The way to clean it out is to fill that sucker up all the way with the clean stuff, with the clear stuff, until the suds have nowhere to go but out. This is what one Puritan calls the expulsive power of a greater affection. A greater love, a greater joy, a greater affection which expels. What's the verb there? Explode, expels. That's why she's a teacher. Expels the worst stuff. This kind of filling with the gospel is what we're doing weekly here on Sundays and throughout the week, reminding ourselves of God's holiness, of our sin, of confessing and resting in our assurance of Christ's life and death and resurrection, growing in community and life together as we learn from his word and as we pray and as we come to this table. His glory in the shadow of, of, of the cross now filling, looming larger and actually flushing out that old joy-sucking stuff all the way out. But it takes time. This is a good gospel, that he loves us enough to live and to die for us, that he loves us enough to not let us wander too far, that he loves us enough to keep us to the end and hold us fast, that above all, that we have a faithful God who will not renege on even one promise, not one. Now, why have we spent all of this time, the last 10 minutes or so, on that I thought this was the benediction sermon. It is. It is the gospel that sends us out in ongoing worship. Worship is not electric guitars. Worship is not something that you only do on Sundays. Remember, worship is something that we do at all times. At every moment, we are all bowing down to someone, something, some idea, some ideal and so the benediction is not, now go, real, go try really hard this week. Try your best, everyone. No, the benediction is in light of all of this, now go out with peace. Go out with joy. Go out with purpose. And what is our purpose? Well, to live lives of joyful and continuous worship to God and of God, but more specifically, to then invite to encourage, to even persuade others into that same joy and peace and purpose. We are people. God has made us into new creations, but now with his new creations, he gives them a new mission. So secondly, a new mission. Let's read verses 18 through 21 again. Paul says, all of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. 
God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. I first heard Tim Keller teaching from Galatians 6 explain that the market economy of the world is to treat anyone and everyone like any other commodity in the world. I've talked about this quite a bit from this pulpit, but I'll keep doing it. That as long as others out there are a net gain for me, then I'm willing to invest in that person. I'll even sacrifice some of my time and energy on some folks as long as they keep providing some return. Maybe they're funny, maybe they're attractive, maybe they help connect me to other friends and upper levels of society that I'd like to be in, but as soon as they become a net loss, then I'm, I'm now putting in more than I'm receiving, then now I'm out. Because they're awkward, they're difficult, they're selfish, I'm out. And so the market economy of the world is your life for mine. We treat the rest of humanity as if they live for me, but this is not the economy of heaven. At the cross, Jesus shows us that the economy of heaven is my life for yours. That Jesus would leave the pleasures and joy of heaven to take on flesh, that he would be rejected, mocked, and ridiculed, that he would be crucified, that he would do all of this to reconcile a people to God through himself. This is the ministry of reconciliation that God has, had promised all the way from the beginning in Genesis 3 that he then put into full motion in a stable in Bethlehem. And the incredible thing about this, though, is that then this ministry of reconciliation, of reconciling people to himself, then he gives it away. He gives it to his people. He makes his people ministers of reconciliation. He makes his people what Paul calls ambassadors. Now, if you've ever gone to like a, a big conference or a camp or something where people are like wearing jackets or t-shirts of their alma mater or their favorite sports team or perhaps where they're from, uh, like you can immediately tell perhaps where they're from or perhaps even make unfounded conclusions of their entire state based on some way that they're acting. A couple years ago, I was in an airport, and I saw a dude, I've seen this shirt several times, but I saw this dude who was pretty loud, verbally and vocally, but he was wearing, have you seen this shirt? It's like a, it's like a map of the United States, and Texas goes like all the way to South Dakota, and like up to Washington or something. Uh, it's like showing, like, it, it makes all the, it crowds out all of the other smaller states or something. Like the, the point of this shirt is like there's only really one state in the union that matters. And I almost stopped this guy and grabbed him by the shoulders and I was like, this is why they hate us. I'm from Texas, if we haven't met. Uh, because of you. Because of a shirt like that. But this is the job that we now have here in Albuquerque and beyond. We represent where we are from. We represent whom we belong to. That of an, we have a job of an ambassador to speak on behalf of our country. In the actual words that we speak or in the lives that we show. And just like the United States has a, an ambassador in every country that we have diplomatic relationship, relations with, the kingdom of heaven has sent an army of ambassadors into an unbelieving world. Now we shouldn't think of ourselves 
as like a U.S. ambassador to England or Denmark or something. I mean, that would be the best job in the whole world, to be the American ambassador to England. Like, what in the world does our ambassador to England do? I'm sure, I'm sure you people know more things than I do, but like, they agree with us on nearly everything, right? Like, we don't have to do much persuasion of them. We're allies. We publicly support each other. The ambassador is basically there uh, just to put his feet up for a few years in case something bad happens. This is not our role. Rather, we should think of ourselves like ancient ambassadors in Paul's day who were now sent out to hostile nations to proclaim peace. And this is what's going on in verses 18 and 19, that God has declared the way of peace with the sinners of the world. Those who are in in utter rebellion against his kingdom, he has declared the way of amnesty. Only most people in the world have no idea that there even is a peace treaty. Even worse, they don't even realize the need for a peace treaty. Most of us live miserably oblivious to our sin, to our rebellion, to our hopelessness. And so our king sends his people out to proclaim the terms of the treaty. That God saves us by himself, through himself, from himself, to himself, and for himself. And here's why we need to be constantly reminded of this reality. This is why we need a blessing for the road. First, we're just forgetful. We often forget, one, that this peace treaty exists, and two, that we represent, that we are an ambassador of this peace treaty. We forget that. Two, we're still selfish, and we still operate under the old economy of the world, of your life for mine. I don't walk out of here thinking about my life for yours, but I use people in the world. I need to be reminded that the world is actually upside down. The right way of the kingdom of heaven is the right side up way. We live in the upside down world. We need to be reminded of that. And three, we're fearful. We just assume that people will reject this message, among many other reasons. But the reality is, is that most folks in Albuquerque will never enter these walls, will never come through these doors. Do you realize that? Most people in this city will never enter this building, which may seem like bad news. Oh shoot, what can we do then? The good news of the gospel is that we no longer have a fixed place, a fixed building of God's presence. In his wise plan, God has made a whole bunch of mobile temples in which he dwells and then sends out. He scatters into the rest of the city. So if we had a, like a dark Google map, like a dark mode or it's night, a Google map of Albuquerque, it might show a little point of light wherever there was a Christian from Christ Church all over the city. We might see 160 or so little lights scattered all over this map in the Northeast Heights and the South Valley, on the West Side and the East Mountains and the North Valley, little lights thrown out. And then for an hour and a half or so, once a week, all of these lights start moving towards the center of the city and they get up all on top of each other. You can't see the difference in the lights. It's just one big light 
there for an hour and a half. But then, just after an hour and a half, then they all go back. You could like put a time lapse on that Google map for a couple years and it would just go whoop, 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 right? But among the lights, then is still much darkness, much darkness. And we long for the light of Christ to come and to make, I don't know, two or three little lights in each neighborhood of the city now into 10 or 15 or 20 or 100. That the Google map of Albuquerque each, le- each year becomes a little less dark. And then as we zoom out in the Google map of the entire globe, and we see near complete darkness in the Middle East and in South Asia and in Southeast Asia and other parts of the world, we either begin packing our bags or we send those who can. This isn't a prideful or paternalistic motive that says we've figured things out here and our way or philosophy is just better than yours, but rather one beggar leading another beggar where he has found bread. Verse 11, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Now, perhaps you've been dreading this sermon, or perhaps not knowing what I was going to preach about, the minute that you caught a sniff that this was like turning into an evangelism sermon, you're like, oh no. I'm not good at it. It's awkward. I don't ever know what to say, or even I know I should, but I don't, and I feel guilty about it. Perhaps you've heard an evangelism sermon or read an evangelism book in the past and they either do make you feel guilty or they just send you out with some better tips and tricks to try harder by sheer willpower. Willpower doesn't work. You know it? One of my favorite books is a book about Lewis and Clark. It's amazing. Undaunted Courage. You gotta read it. It's so good. Meriwether Lewis, stay with me. Meriwether Lewis, on his 31st birthday, had just led 30 men across North America, over the Rocky Mountains, and into Montana, and he wrote this in his journal. He wrote, I reflected that I had as yet done but little, very little indeed, to further the happiness of the human race, or to advance the information of the succeeding generation. I viewed with regret the many hours I have spent in indolence, and now sorely feel the want of that information which those hours would have given me had they just been judiciously expended. But since they are past and cannot be recalled, I dash from me the gloomy thought and resolve in in the future to redouble my exertions and at least endeavor to promote those two primary objectives of human existence by giving them the aid of that portion of talents which nature and fortune have bestowed on me, or in future to live for mankind." as I heretofore have lived for myself. I won't spoil the book. He doesn't keep that. He like sat there looking over Montana and realized, you know, I've wasted a lot of my life, even though he'd just done something pretty remarkable. I'm going to make my life count, Meriwether Lewis thought. It didn't end well. The first time I read that quote, I was like, yeah, that's really convicting for me. I'm going to like put that quote onto my heart. And then I think I got to the end of the book and I was like, oh, but that didn't work. Just as you know from broken New Year's resolutions each year, conviction and willpower can only take you so far. Perhaps you've heard an evangelism sermon and you've left excited to share the gospel and perhaps you even did it a few times, but it didn't become a way of life. Well, here's 
Another reason why the gospel is good news. It's for those who are timid, who are fearful, who are self-centered. It is for people like me and you. And it is only through a deepening understanding of the gospel in our own lives that we'll want to actually long for it for others. We naturally evangelize for the things that we think are important. I remember when YouTube TV became a thing, it was like $35 or something a month when it was first a deal. And I, like all my friends were still paying 100 bucks a month for direct TV or something. And I found this thing that has an unlimited DVR. You can watch it on your phone. It's like $35. Now it's way more than that. But I, I remember when it became a thing, I was telling everyone about YouTube TV. I became an evangelist for YouTube TV because I thought it was great. We naturally evangelize for the things that we think are great. Perhaps we do not evangelize for the gospel, for the person of Jesus, because we actually are not convinced that he is great, that he is worthy of being shared, that we want people to know him. So that's why we must continue to keep growing in our love, in our trust, in our deepening uh, awareness of the hugeness of the gospel in our lives, or else we will just be merely sharing something out of, I guess we should be doing this, or out of sheer willpower. Now, all that said, some practical helpers here for as we think about our unbelieving friends and our neighbors. The first thing is this, just pray. Pray. Like, this is not the spiritual, like, just hat tip to make you think that this is, like, especially spiritual or something. No, praying about evangelism is really, really important. It is God who draws and saves sinners, who gives reconciliation and peace. So praying is the most vital thing that we can do. God loves to hear. We thought about this a few weeks ago. God loves to hear and respond to the prayers of his people. So pray for individuals by name. Pray that God would give you opportunities to share the gospel. Pray for then the boldness to actually capitalize on that moment when God gives it to you. And if praying is the first thing, the second thing would be consider every opportunity a gospel opportunity. Now, we haven't done any big evangelism pushes here at Christ Church. No door knocking um, programs, though, maybe someday. We just primarily want to live out the lives that God has already given us with just greater intentionality. We are around loads and loads of unbelievers each day. Now, you all are likely around more unbelievers than even I am. My job is to primarily meet and equip you to be with you. You all are around classmates, coworkers, We all are around neighbors, baristas, even the different parents at our kids' practices, random people at the park. Last week in the membership class, we considered some of these things. And if all of you, or if you are a member, then all of you have thought about some of the things that I'm about to say. But do you expect God's presence in the ordinary things of your life? Perhaps you, when you were in the car driving downtown on a Sunday afternoon, coming here. Perhaps you pray to get your heart right on the way to church because you expect God's presence here. You want to worship well in his midst and amongst his people. And that's right. You should do that. 
But as a Christian who is a mobile temple, the dwelling place of God, God's presence and power is with you, not only here, but wherever you are. Do you expect his presence and power when you are also heading to your kid's soccer practice? Do you expect his presence and power when you are studying at the coffee shop? Do you expect his presence and power when you are inviting someone over for dinner? If not, our expectations are far too low, and we shortchange the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells in those whom he has saved. So here's a question for all of us to think about as a church. If God were to pick all of us up, I don't know how, we all, he picked us up and moved us to Seattle, or we all decided we're going to move to Seattle. All of us, we're going to move to Seattle and we're going to plant a new church there. If we all moved to Seattle, what would we do? What would we do? What would our plan be for the next, I don't know, six months or so that's left in this year? We might do some sort of like neighborhood outreach thing, but my guess is, is that we would just kind of do the things that we're already doing there uh, with just greater intentionality. Like if our job, if not just my job, but our collective job was to kind of like see this church grow. Like if you raised financial support, you raised financial support to go and help plant a church and to, Lord willing, see its growth, and you sent out a monthly update to your supporters, what would you want to report to them? Likely the same kind of stories that we hear from our families in their emails that they send from North Africa or from Central Asia. They send us little paragraph bullets, wonderful little encouraging anecdotes about the conversations about the gospel that they've struck up with neighbors and with taxi drivers and with shop owners. And then if we were in Seattle, then hopefully we would be able to write about the folks that we've had over for dinner a couple of times, about the conversations that we've had over a long dinner or a board game. Here's the thing. You don't have to raise support and have to have a support letter to do these things. If you did have a, all right, July 31st, you've got a support email that you've got to write. If that deadline was on your, over your radar and you had that coming, what would you do in the next month that you'd hope to be able to share with some of your supporters? If we truly understood the mission of God as our job that he has left us to do on earth, what actions would flow from this understanding? At Christ Church, we want to be about living our lives outward with the gospel in mind and then inviting people into this life in the gospel, in this community, about living out and inviting in, living out and inviting in. God's ministry of reconciliation goes with us wherever we go. This makes us ministers. This makes us agents. This makes us ambassadors of reconciliation. Ambassadors pleading with rebels to live in peace with the king. And while Christ is the sole mediator between life and death, it is almost as if we ourselves are the one who is standing in the gap between this person's eternal fate, pleading and persuading. As Spurgeon says, if sinners be damned, let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms around their knees. Or as Paul says, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So, 
as we prepare for God to scatter us all over the city for six and a half more days, know that God sends us with something to do, to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that he has commanded. This is the job. This is your job. You're not going to get paid for it. But this is our job, our most primary job that God has left us, left us with. But no amount of Spurgeon quotes will sustain you in that. will fire you up enough to sustain any of us in that. But a deepening and saving encounter with a glorious Christ will. Which may be why Paul, right after all of this ambassador and persuading talk, just goes right back to the heart of the gospel. Verse 21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is what sends us out. This is a good word for the road. For our sake, the spotless lamb of God would be pierced and crushed for us who are covered in spots that we might receive his righteous life of obedience, that we might share in his life, his death, and his resurrection, so that we will remember, and so we will go. We will get forgetful. You know this about yourself. I know this about all of us. We will forget. We will forget this good news. And so we'll come back next Sunday for gathered worship where we will again be reminded of all of this stuff all over again. But Lord willing, over weeks and months and years and decades, we will have our habits changed, our desires formed, have our character conformed more and more to Christ because of our gathered Sundays together, because of meetings and hangouts with each other in which we're just laughing and encouraging and praying for one another. And then we'll do it again next week, and then we'll do it again next week, until slowly and surely the Lord has made us more and more into the image of Christ, or until he returns. This is who we are, the church, the assembled people of God, united together as the body of Christ under our head, the Lord Jesus Christ, slowly just following the shepherd. We are um, just a weak, uh, fickle group of sheep, and we are all following a sure and steady Savior toward his green pastures, now inviting others into our belonging to him and inviting others into our belonging to one another as well. And being united to him and to one another is actually what the book of Ephesians is all about. How's that for a transition? So we're just going to pick right up where we left off right there next Sunday in Ephesians 1. It's a big chunk, verses 1 through 14, but maybe consider reading that whole book five or six times this week. It'll take you like 15 or 20 minutes. Just read the whole book of Ephesians. And then do it again and again and again. I guarantee you, you'll be blessed by it. But until then, let's pray that God would do these things in us and then send us out well. Our Father, we are so thankful for your work in us, for the work that you have done in the Lord Jesus, for sealing us to him by your spirit. Father, we pray that this gospel might become more and more true in our lives, more and more evident, more and more real and experienced and believed in our lives. 
Help us to recognize and realize this gospel as so good that we can't help but talking about it, we can't help but sharing about it, we can't help but inviting others into it. Make us into this people. Pray that you might even use perhaps discipline or some willpower this week, some conviction to talk about the gospel this week so that it actually does become a reality more and more deeply in our lives. But Father, we pray that you might grow us Grow us in depth. We pray that you would grow us even in number, that we might be encouraged by your work of salvation, of conversion in this city, that the darkness on the map of this city might see more and more light. Help us, we pray, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ's church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.